0: You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host,
1: Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, which features somebody who is in the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. Pretty impressive. Not often you see somebody who hits all three major branch components. So we'll get to that story coming up in a minute. want to again remind you guys that we have some big news coming. We are super excited about it, and I know you guys are really annoyed because we haven't told you exactly what it is yet. But it is coming very, very soon. We are excited. We're going to take this podcast, this show, to the next level, add in some new features that you guys are really going to like. So stay tuned. We have big, big news coming up. Also, Just a couple of days ago, we passed the four-year anniversary of the Hazard Ground podcast. And when I tell you that Matt... My executive producer, Matt Pascarella, and me could not be happier and prouder of what this thing has turned into and the community that we've grown. We thank you guys so much for being a part of this Hazard Ground community and growing this thing because without you, we don't have the audience and we don't tell the tales that we do, tell the stories that we do without you guys wanting to hear them every single week. So four years, over 200 episodes, over 2.5 million downloads in total since we started this thing. It has just been something that has exceeded what we thought it was ever going to be and we know we're only going to get better and bigger and again thank you so much for being a huge part of the hazard ground and one of the ways that we've grown is through our social media sites so make sure you guys follow us there facebook twitter and instagram at hazard ground at hazard ground podcast as well subscribe to our youtube channel because that is another platform that we are really growing on so make sure you subscribe there Make sure you guys leave those ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're trying to crack the top 100. We're getting there with your help. We're getting more and more ratings and reviews every week, so keep it up. Tell somebody that you know who's listening to this. Leave the rating in the review. We're going to crack the Top 100 Apple Podcasts here very, very soon, and we're going to do it with your help. Don't forget about our Amazon promotion on our website, com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or on the Sponsors tab. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and then we'll take a percentage of that and donate it back to the charities that have been featured here on the show. Again... I can't wait to tell you guys the big news as soon as we can, waiting on a couple of other things. I know you're going to love what we have in store for you guys, so please stay tuned. But in the meantime, here's another Hazard Ground episode. And joining us this week on the Hazard Ground is a retired Sergeant First Class from the U.S. Army who's also a Green Beret with over 20 years of service in multiple branches. He has over a dozen deployments around the world. And in 2010, he stepped on an IED and nearly lost his leg It was reattached after multiple surgeries and a grueling rehabilitation, in which he now uses a prosthetic device known as an ideo, an intrepid dynamic exoskeletal orthosis, and after being medically retired, fought his way back to active duty, returned to Afghanistan to be awarded the Silver Star, the nation's third highest award for valor, and he wrote a book about his entire journey titled Tip of the Spear, The Incredible Story of an Injured Green Beret's Return to Battle. He is Ryan Hendrickson joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Ryan, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Hey, I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. And for the record, uh, right now you are sitting in Dubai as we record this. So if you guys are hearing a little bit of a delay in Ryan's responses, it's because, well, he's on the other side of the world. So we certainly appreciate you joining us and excited to hear about your story. Um, But real quick, tell us why you're in Dubai and, and what do you have going on?
0: Um, so I'm actually in Dubai as far as a, um, a mandatory quarantine um, before you can go into Afghanistan and i'm uh, I'm actually I'm getting ready to uh, do my eighth uh, trip to to Afghanistan and then uh, probably 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 be the last one with everything closing down but yeah that's, that's what I'm doing
1: Are you doing this as a like a, a contractor
0: uh, yes yeah i'm I'm a contractor now
1: okay Well, let's go back to the beginning. Tell us how and why you got your start in the military and what that was all about.
0: So yeah, from, from the beginning, I, you know, I grew up in a little town in Oregon, uh, Lowell, Oregon. And, um, and basically, you know, I, I turned 18 years old and my dad, you know, he said, Hey, you know, you, you can, uh, you can uh, go out and get a job or you can, you know, go to college or whatever. You're not really college material, but um, or you can join the military, but you can't, you can't stay here. Cause if I let you stay here, uh, you're, you're going to be that guy at, you know, 40 years old talking about his senior year in high school, playing football or something like that at the gas station. So you got to go. Um, so basically, you know, the, I went and I did the, uh, I did the military recruiter roulette and, uh, you know, the, my, my test scores, my ASVAB test scores were, uh, modest to say the least, I guess, <laughs> And, um, so, you know, the air force, they, they pretty much was like, nah, that's, yeah, you're, you're not really what we're looking for. Cause in the mid nineties, they, no one really needed anybody. Right. Um, the army had a really long wait list to, to go in and, um, the Marine recruiter, he was, man, that guy was so angry. So he like scared (laughs) me. I was like, nah, I don't want to be a Marine. These These guys are scary. And, but the Navy recruiter, I mean, this dude had like, I mean, he, he he basically, he might as well have been wearing like a Hawaiian polo shirt or something. And, you know, and you want to be a F-14 Tomcat pilot, like Tom Cruise, but yeah. Like, you want to be a Navy SEAL, like Charlie Sheen? Yeah. He's like, okay, cool. Sign here. And yeah, none of that happened. I didn't fly any F-14 Tomcats as a D1. Really crazy. But, um, (laughs) I, you know, I got to see the world. And, um, and so, yeah, being in the Navy, you know, uh, the, the different countries and the multiple ports and, and everything like that, it really, you know, I did what my dad intended, which was to open up my eyes from small Lowell, Oregon to, you know, there's a huge world out there.
1: Well, your dad was in the military too, right?
0: Into the military. Yes.
1: What was it? What branch was he in?
0: So my dad, he was in the army and my dad did, uh. He did two tours in Vietnam as um, you know, with uh, uh, helicopter crew chief. So you know, it's uh, his, his job was you know maintenance on aircraft, and then when you're flying, you're a, you're a gunner. So it's that's pretty much what he did, did for he, two tours.
1: Did he ever talk to you about his experience in Vietnam and anything that went on?
0: Um, there was there was points in time, you know, when you know um, when we would. We talk about a few things. It it wasn't more until I got blown up when you know he really kind of he opened up a little bit to me. But um and and obviously writing the book, um he you know there was you know he had to make sure that you know I wasn't I wasn't putting him on this pedestal that he didn't feel like he believed he belonged on. But um, but yeah, it's uh, I mean I, I learned the hard way about jumping out. Just scare my dad as a little kid. That's not that's a big no-no for a Vietnam vet. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, you know, just just stuff like that. Yeah.
1: So you start your career out in the Navy. What's your first duty station? Your first job? Where you're going? Uh, what year month is this all taking place?
0: Yeah. So the the Navy I joined in '97, and um, I, I would say uh, probably about the the winter of 97, I, I found myself, um, you know, uh, flying to um, Incirlik, Turkey to meet my uh, first ship, uh, the USS Shreveport. And so, yeah, I went out there as, you know, second time ever being on a plane. First time was to go to boot camp. Second time was to fly to Turkey. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, yeah, I, I met my first ship out there and then we went to the Persian Gulf and, and that pretty much started, you know, my Navy time. And I did two deployments to the Persian Gulf on a ship. Um, One once on the West coast, which was the USS Camden and once on the East coast, which was the USS Shreveport. So I've actually circled the globe on a ship, which is kind of cool, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So when does your Navy time end?
0: So I got out of the Navy April, 2001 and (laughs) I wasn't, I wasn't really sure. Yeah. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I just knew that, you know, there's no war going on. Um, I was, you know, the Navy was great. I I got my eyes opened up, but you know, I wanted to, uh, I don't know, I just did your four years and now it's time to move on. So yeah, I got out and tried my hand at civilian life, which didn't work out too well for me.
1: (laughs) What job did you try to get or what did you do immediately after prior to 9-11 happening? Of course.
0: So I was, I was doing a, um, a bunch of odds and end jobs, but believe it or not, I ended up going to (laughs) bartending academy and becoming a bartender for, for a while working at a casino. And I just, that's when I realized, you know, I was still pretty young, but that's when I realized like, I don't deal well with people. (laughs) So, so yeah, as a bartender, it's probably, probably the wrong trait to have, but but yeah, I just, I was like, man, I, I don't know my mind. I'm just a military minded kind of guy. And so, and so, yeah, that, you know, I I spent a couple of years trying to figure out who I was and what I was doing. And, um, you know, the war in Afghanistan had kicked off, but I, I didn't really think of it as, you know, I thought we would go in and we do what we did and it'd be over with quickly. There was no need to, I, I guess, to rejoin the force and, you know, protect the homeland or whatever you want to call it, you know, like the movies. But um, 2003 rolled around in Iraq, and then I was like, okay, yeah, I need to get back in the military.
1: So 9-11 wasn't the impetus for you to rejoin? You had to wait till Iraq started?
0: Yeah, I mean, I knew um, I knew after 9-11, you know, we would, <clears throat> in my opinion, I thought we were going to go into Afghanistan and, and basically do what we did. You know, we we're going to topple the Top of Al Qaeda within within months, and then everyone would come home, and that that would be that would be it. Uh, that's that's what I that's what I thought almost twenty years ago. So, <laughs> yeah, boy, were no, you I, wrong? Yeah, I, I didn't. Um, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I didn't really. I didn't really think it was going to end up being you know what it turned out to be. But yeah, then once okay. Iraq campaign kicked off, that's when I realized like okay, this, this is something. And, um, I, I need to be a part of this. And so, yeah, I, um, after, you know, I think January, 2003, um, I decided between, you know, me and my ex-wife, uh, we decided that we, I join the air force cause she was prior army and she didn't want me being in the army. So the only, only other one since the Marines were so scary was <laughs> join the air force.
1: Oh, okay. Well, so in this decision in getting back in, like, was there never any hesitation about, okay, we're going to combat now? Did did your father step in and go, look, I've been to combat. You don't need to go do this kind of deal. What was the discussions like with the family?
0: No, nah, it was, it, it was nothing. I mean, it was nothing like that at all. Um, <clears throat> it's, you know, as as far as like, I, I think so. When I was in the Navy, we we responded to the uh, to the USS Cole bombing mm-hmm. in Yemen because we were about we were about twelve hours away from uh, the port of um, Aden when um, when the coal got hit, and so that was that was kind of my first eye opening, you know, look at like oh wow, people are really trying to kill us. But I don't. I mean, my dad, he you know, uh, he he pretty much it's you know it's a grown man's game you do what you want to do and uh hope for the best um in the end but it's in the end it's 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 life and you know if um you know is you you want to try and you want to try and create the best one you can while you got it um because you only got one shot at it so yeah so air force or army or marines or navy whatever just keep racking those uh his experiences up was basically his mindset.
1: So you get back in right after the Iraq War kicks off. Where do you get the first idea of special forces? When does that come into your mind?
0: So, yeah, when I was uh I went to Iraq and um the uh the base we were at there was um there was special forces there and I remember um running into them at the gym and stuff like that and and I got to talking with one of um, a couple of the guys on the team. And then that led to talking to more guys on the team. And, and I basically just started getting, you know, I hearing their experiences and stuff like that. And it's like, man, cause I, I had an amazing job in the air force. I was a, I was an ammo troop, um, real tight knit community, but there was always something missing. Like I wasn't, I wasn't fulfilled with what I was doing. And so uh, talking to these guys, um, uh, it, it, it really, I was you know, it, it kept it those ideas of what they were doing were filling all these voids that I had that I had in as far as my military experience went. And so um, and then I think what really got the uh, gears turning in my head was um, one of the guys on the team was prior Air Force and he switched over to the Army and then went through selection and Q course. And now he's a green beret in Iraq. And I was like, Oh wow, you can do this. That's a thing. And so that's actually what got it, you know, turning in my head in 2004, but it wasn't up until 2008 to when I actually, um, you know, I made a very spur of the moment, <laughs> um, uh, running away from a divorce decision to, uh, to transfer blue to green, um, from air force to army. And, um, and, 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 start that,
1: uh, path like I did. Wow. Uh, when you say running away from a divorce, uh, I mean, is this, was this something that you just felt was going to occupy your time better? I mean, what was p- behind, I mean, obviously look, the emotional component of it is there, but uh, when you look back on it, do you mm-hmm. think that, do you still consider it running away from a divorce or is it it's something that, you know, there was other motivations behind that you didn't recognize?
0: Oh, no, it was, it was, it was 100%. I needed to um, bury myself into something that was bigger than me to get my mind off of everything and to, um, to completely dedicate myself to, to something. And in the army, it was just, it was perfect timing um, to tell you the truth. I mean, yeah, it's crappy situation, but it was perfect timing because I, you know, I did. I, I I threw myself 100% in the training, everything. Um, and, and yeah, I I think because of the timing in my life is why I was so successful, um, going through selection in the Q course and, and everything that led up to it and everything that happened afterwards. But, you know, you, you can run, but there's, you know, in, uh, in the end, you're gonna, you're gonna get caught and, and you're still gonna have to face whatever you were running from. So, so yeah, I ran for a long time and then uh and then yeah, basically made it through, became a Green Beret, and um and yes, yeah, started started my uh second chapter of my life. Yeah,
1: you know, it's interesting. The irony isn't lost on me that um most people get out of the Green Berets to avoid divorce. You got into the Green Berets because of a divorce. So there's a, there's some symmetry there, I yeah. think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, So in a, in a, in
0: a, in a poetic kind of way. Right.
1: <laughs> so this all starts for you in 2008 and it's what about an 18 month to two year process when it's all said and done between assessment and selection, and the Q course. So uh, when do you actually become a green beret and, and get to a team?
0: Yeah. So when I joined the army, um, I had to go through infantry, basic airborne school and all that stuff. Um, but from, basically from flash to bang i think um i graduated in um february of 2010 wow. and went to seven special forces group
1: so that's quick i mean all things considered it wasn't you know i mean that's as fast track as you can pretty much go
0: yeah yeah 100
1: all right so you go to seven special forces group and then what do you immediately deploy once you get there
0: uh, pretty close. Yeah. I, um, we ended up, we were scheduled for, um, another deployment and this, um, the company that I was with, um, they had just returned from Afghanistan and we did the troop surge. And, and so it was like, Hey man, um, sorry, but you know, you got, you guys are heading back. And we actually, um, uh, Admiral Mullen, who was the chairman, joint chief of staff at the time, uh, he, he actually flew out to our pre-mission training, um, where, when we were, you know, doing our pre-deployment training and whatnot like that, um, he flew out there to give us a little speech about, Hey, you guys are, you guys are going to a really nasty area. Um, and you know, I mean, good luck basically. And, and it was weird because chairman joint chief of staff doesn't really fly out and do, and do site visits like that, but he did it with us. And, And yeah, it was because, yeah, we were, we were going to a pretty bad area, so.
1: All right, so this is the deployment where you ultimately end up stepping on an IED. Uh, What was it like initially when you get there, operational tempo-wise? I mean, look, this is a whole lot of new going on for you. One, it's Afghanistan. Two, it's your first experience with an ODA and and a special forces team. Uh, And as the new guy there, I'm sure there's a, a learning curve for you. So what was the environment like overall?
0: Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was, I was completely a fish out of water because, you know, I, I had been on a ship in the Navy or I was basically on the flight line in the air force. And now, now all of a sudden, you know, we're out on, we're out on missions and it was, it was three days in the country and we got in our first, um, firefight our troops in contact. And, um, and you know, the vehicles all got shot up real bad. And it was, it was just, it was such an adrenaline rush, but it was, it was amazing. You know, I, I, I loved it. I love the adrenaline rush. I love the excitement, um, the seven, six, two cracking around and stuff like that. I know, I know it sounds really stupid to a lot of people, but it is a rush. It's a high. And, um, and yeah, slowly I, uh, got addicted to, I guess, combat as you could say it <laughs> in a weird, in a weird kind of way. But, um, but yeah, completely, uh, culture change for me.
1: In in that sort of high you speak of, uh, and there is an adrenaline rush in combat. We talk about it a lot, right? I mean, some people view it uh, as that that kind of adrenaline rush that's exciting. Other people view it as the adrenaline rush that is fight or flight. But uh, it is there, and I think it's a real thing. But uh, did you ever think back, you know, as that uh, firefights end and and bullets are done flying before you get injured, that— the the running you did away from the divorce was the best thing you ever did. Did you did you ever compare those moments in in your private time?
0: Um, no i I didn't really. I I didn't really. I guess in a in a in a way of saying it for the for the listeners, I didn't really man up and take control over it. I just kept burying myself into other things and 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 pushing away. You know. Um, I mean, flat out, you know, my, uh, my immaturities that had led to the divorce and, um, and you know, I kept, I just kept blaming things on, you know, uh, this is the reason why, I mean, basically I, 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 I kind of, I kind of relished in the victim mode if, if that makes any sense to you.
1: No, sure. totally. Um,
0: you know, yeah, I just kind of, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really address it and I needed to, but, um, I was just I just kept burying myself into everything else and and um, and hey I'm this I'm this badass green beret but uh, inside you're you know you're still a kid yeah well <laughs> and, and again mentality and, and, and I, stuff like that
1: I, I asked that just because the emotional component of it all like you said you can run but it catches up to you and I just did I was curious if it caught up to you at any point in time. While you were there, like while you were in the combat experience, you know I mean th- th- that can be somewhat debilita- debilitating at times
0: now it it didn't catch up to me until after i um, I stepped on the IED, and that's when um, that's when I had you know obviously my life had been changed, and um, I had a lot of time to to figure out exactly who uh, Ryan Hendrickson was. And I started to figure out that I didn't really like who Ryan Hendrickson was. And so, yeah, that didn't actually happen until after the IED.
1: Oh, gotcha. Okay, well, let's get to that date. It was September 12th, 2010. Is it a normal day when you wake up? Or are you going on mission? Can you kind of describe uh, the events surrounding it?
0: Yeah, so uh, September 11th, uh, we had kicked off a, a big clearance operation along the Helmand River. and um, And if anybody... Listening to this knows about Afghanistan. You know Hellman and Hellman River is real bad, real bad area. Um, and so September 11th we kicked off our mission. Um, it was getting into early morning hours. It's transitioned to September 12th, and we are prepared, well, my my clearance element. There was about I think there was four or five ODAs up and down the river, clearing different areas, and my um, my team uh, we were responsible for clearing a village, uh, Sartutu. And, um, and so we're waiting, you know, we get the green light to, you know, we're, we're, we're positioned, we're postured, whatnot like that, get the green light go. And so we start moving, you know, the click or whatever towards the village and we get to the outskirts of it. And it's, it, there's, there's no movement, there's no people, there's no lights, there's no fires. Um, and so everybody knows that's a that's a bad thing <laughs> in mm-hmm. Afghanistan
1: yeah
0: you're either walking into it, you're either walking into an ambush or um, the village is littered with IEDs so we had you know we had moved up to the first set of compounds we were about 25 meters from them and so I I said okay I told our interpreter uh Nick I said hey man get um Get our get our Afghan our local police that we have with us, and let's let's start clearing these compounds. We don't want to be out um, in the we don't want to be out in the open when when the sun comes up, and it's it's already like three a.m. and you know you start getting that glimmer of light about four, and then you know four fifteen you're taking your nods off, you know stuff like that. But um, so yeah, we uh, you know I I told him let's go, and and he 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 had uh, he had relayed the message and they weren't going to move. It's like, okay. Uh, th- yeah, that's, th- th- that's not a good thing. I was like, what, what, what's the problem, man? And he said, this, they don't want to go. They say it's too dangerous. I like, well, n- n- no kidding. It's dangerous, man. It's, it's Afghanistan. These guys have had visual on this, on this village for, for months, if not years, like let's go. And he relayed the message again. And they said, no, Americans have to go first because it's too dangerous. I was like, you gotta be kidding me, man. So I turned around to relay all this to the uh, senior guy that was with me. There was two Americans per every probably about 12 Afghans. So I turned around to relay this information to him. And he, uh, you know, we're still being kind of hush hush because we think we got the element of surprise, even though Taliban knows where you're at. And, um, but you know, it's, it's good. It's good uh, field practice. And so he whispers to me and he goes, Hey, tell Nick to get away from that compound and I looked down and Nick had ran down to the first compound and he was um he was kind of like messing around with the first compound um it's not really a door it, it was a bunch of sticks lined up against the main entrance point and I looked back and I was like, oh crap because you know the ground hasn't been cleared yet and so you know, if you lose your interpreter, you can't communicate with your indigenous force, you can't communicate with, and everybody listening kind of can see how things will spiral quickly out of control on a mission. So, so, you know, I started moving down, um, to his, to the area that he was in, and we all knew that there was IEDs all over the river, um, all over the river banks, and the river area and whatnot, and in the villages. <clears throat> so I start moving down to where he's at, and I finally, you know, I reached him and I'm like, holy cow, man, that's the longest 25 meters or 20 meters I've ever covered in my life. But I reached him and I was like, hey, man, this is the wrong answer. We need to move back now. And he's like, no, no, we can get him in the compound. I was like, no, we need to move back, regroup. This area is not cleared, bro. And so I grabbed him by the back of his collar and I pulled him back. And because you never want to have, you know, any, any part of your body, you know, um, exposed to, uh, the opening of a, of a compound or as we call it the breach, you know, I, I turned to face the breach. So my M4 was there in case I needed to start putting rounds down range. Um, because right now the, the, the threat area was what I couldn't see behind those compound walls. And, um, so yeah, we, uh, <laughs> I turned to put my, uh, get my muzzle at least where I can start engaging targets. And I stepped to, I want to say the right, just to kind of get a better look around one of the, um, one of the blind spots I had and boom.
1: Okay. Boom doesn't really uh, do it justice. Uh, When, when the IED goes off, um, do you know immediately what has happened Mm -hmm. to you? No, no, I
0: didn't I didn't really know what happened to me at first. I, I remember um so the IED went off and I didn't even know it was an IED because you know your 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 mind builds up like what you think an explosion is gonna be like and you see all the movies and there's these massive fireballs and everything like that. And but um when you step on one and I don't recommend people like going out and trying to debunk my theory, but when you step on one, <laughs> you're kinda like you're kind of like in this little cone, to where I don't know. I just it didn't sound as loud as I thought it was going to, and so because of that, I was like, "What? What just happened? It, you know, maybe took an RPG or something like that." I was like, "Wow," but I I couldn't. I, I remember like I was on the ground. And I couldn't breathe the amount of dust and the ammonia from the homemade explosives and everything like that. I couldn't breathe. And I was like, Holy cow, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to suffocate. And so I kept trying to stand up, but I couldn't. So I'd stand up and fall over, stand up and fall over. And so now I'm getting, I'm getting pissed. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, what is the problem? It still hasn't started hurting yet. And, um, and slowly, you know, and by this time the, you know, the, the sky is already, Already blew The sun's not up, but you know it's that time when you can take your nods off because you can see just fine. Um, but yeah, as I, you know, as the dust started to settle a little bit, and I looked down and my boot was at a ninety degree angle to my leg, and I remember thinking, I was like, I don't, I don't remember taking my boot off, but I couldn't really figure out, you know, because your brain doesn't tell yeah, it's, you can't comprehend what's going on because it's not natural, believe it or not. (laughs) And so, um, so my leg is at a 90 degree angle and I'm just like this, I I don't understand what just happened. And so I picked up from behind, you know, I, both my hands underneath my knee and I picked my leg up and my boot had flopped over to the side to where basically my Mm. toes were hitting the back of my back of my hamstrings oh. and then and then i looked down and i saw i saw um you know my my uniform or my uniform bottoms my pants and they were just shredded and there was these two pearly white objects sticking out and i remember i couldn't figure out what they were because they were so white and again you can't you can't comprehend what's going on because it's not natural you know, this, we, we don't just go around having our tib and our fib sticking out of our pant legs. So you yeah. can't recognize it right off the bat. And, um, then when it actually hit me, like, oh, I just stepped on an IED, then, you know, I was started, you know, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. And, um, and that started a whole, <laughs> a whole nother, you know, process of actually trying to get to me because if, um, anybody knows, um, anything about, uh, the enemy, um they are going where there's one ied i mean the same there's we have a team is where there's one ied there's five
1: right they are daisy um, chain together usually there's, too
0: there's several uh i've ran into a lot of those yes but um in in some of the instances what they like to do is they don't necessarily want to daisy chain um some of the areas because they're hoping that a person will hit one of the devices you hit the device and then there's a whole bunch of other devices that are in the surrounding you know area to where they've pretty much predicted U.S. troops are going to go to, to um, to support their fallen comrade, and basically it's it, it's it's a brilliant move on the enemy's part, but they play off of our um, off of our, our unwavering. Yeah. Well, they play off of our unwavering devotion to human life. And if we have a buddy, if we, I mean, we will, we will send a hundred men out to recover one person, um, knowing the risk that those hundred men could also get a guy. You know what I'm saying? No, like, yeah, w- totally. human life and what it means. Yeah, what it means to us. Uh, they play off that, and so, yeah, they'll 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 litter the area with uh, secondary IEDs, toe poppers, and just hope to get a mass casualty there. And then if they can do that, then initiate an ambush, and well it's a, it's a bad day.
1: Right. Um, what happened to Nick your terp when you stepped on the IED? Cause you were pulling him from his collar, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So he, he had, he had some superficial, you know, like uh, from the blast fragment and whatnot like that, he was bleeding a little bit, but he was still able to walk around. He was just in shock because, um, this, this IED went off in his face. And so, uh, you know, I I remember yelling at him, telling him, telling him to quit moving because he was kind of staggering around and it's like, stop moving, man, (laughs) you're going to blow up another one and then I'm going to get fragged again and I don't want to. Um, So he took a seat right where he was at and I just, I looked back and um, the other American that was with us, you know, he's on the radio, you know, yelling man down, man down. We got to, you know, uh, eagle down, eagle down. And uh, the, everybody knows that's, you, you don't want to hear that over, over the comms. And, um, and he was like, Hey man, you know, it, I mean, one of the instances was kind of funny. He's like, don't move. I was like, where, where do you think I'm going to go, dude? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he, um, they couldn't just rush. They couldn't just rush to me because I mean, it, it's, it, it sucks, but having that discipline and understanding your operational environment is key to, you know, to successfully, I mean, to saving, saving lives. And if people would have started running to where I was at um, when they went back into the village, uh, that whole courtyard was IED. And so some other people would have gotten um, hurt if not killed. And so they made the correct call, but let me tell you what, it's a lonely, lonely feeling when you're up there and, and, no one's coming for you right off the bat. Oh my gosh!
1: <laughs> I mean, do you start to go into shock, like you know, physically of what's going on with your body?
0: Yeah. So I know shock was one of the biggest um, issues that I was having, and so when the team finally got to me, I remember I was just trying to—I I j- I was just trying to go to sleep. I was like, I just want to sleep, and um, and one of the guys on our team, George, he kept slapping me, and it was just pissing me off. But I just wanted to just fade away and go to sleep because it's like, wow, this really hurts. If I can if I can get some sleep, I'll wake up and then I'll all be better, right? <laughs> and so and so, yeah, I'm just I I just want to sleep, and but they won't let me, and I keep fading, um, and every time he hits me. Um, you know, slaps me to try and keep me coherent, I just keep fading, you know, more and more and those slaps start to feel like kind of like an echo. And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, I want to go to sleep. This hurts um, bad because I also, they hit me with the morphine injector and I, and I broke out in hives everywhere. So I, was like, uh, I figured it out there. And then <laughs> so, um, and our medic on the ground, he's he made the correct call, he's like, "Hey man, you just had an allergic reaction. there's not much I can I don't pump you with any more stuff because if you have another reaction that that could kill you and he's like you're just you're gonna have to suck this one up bro and so yeah it it, it was it was horrible, but <laughs> I mean, you know, made it talking to you
1: yeah no I, I guess uh, how long did it take the guys to get to you? Do you remember the time frame?
0: Um, I mean, I I've tossed numbers around in my head for a while. Uh, I I wasn't I didn't have a stopwatch, but I would say, I, I mean, three to five minutes, I guess. I don't okay. know. I think it was about that.
1: So it felt a lot longer than it was. You think?
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. It felt like hours, um, <laughs> in, in that situation. But in reality, it wasn't wasn't anything. It wasn't anything anywhere close to that. It just it felt that way because you're you know, it's like, I mean, it's, it's a weird feeling when, when you're, you know, you're kind of laying on the ground because someone just tried to kill you and you're just like, wow, um, there, there's no rules here. You can't, you can't call time out. This hurts or, or, okay. Hey, look, man, I've had enough. You, you win, whatever. There's like, nah, there's no rules. <laughs> you're gonna, they, they want you to die.
1: And so I, I read, yeah, it, was, uh... it was
0: very weird. Um,
1: I read an interview where you said that you could hear the Taliban on the radio celebrating after you got hit.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They, yeah. They came up over ICOM chatter and they were, you know, doing their, their celebration, you know, basically, Hey, we, we, we got one of them infidel, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But yeah, they were, they were celebrating it. And, um, and then um, the scary part was they were saying, Hey, uh, let's, let's move the ambush in. And so they were they were moving to ambush us. Um, our overwatch position was already in a tick. Um, they were already taking fire from um, all angles, and um, they were in the Taliban were trying to move guys as you know to us to to ambush us and as close as they could get to us because the closer you are to Americans, less likely we are to drop bombs on you.
1: All right. So what is the last thing you remember seeing, hearing who you were talking to before ultimately they put you out to start performing uh, at this point? We're thinking is leg saving surgery, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I was I was awake for the entire, um, you know, trip to I mean, the helicopters couldn't land where we were at. So they had to pick me up, move me about 500 meters um, to where we can get an HLZ that was free of IEDs. (laughs) And so, um, and so, yeah, they, uh, and I, I, I was there, I, I remember most of the flight. And then I remember when I got to Taren Kaut or TK, um, nurses came out and they were trying to cut my clothes off and all this stuff. And I was, I was fighting them and whatnot. Cause I wanted to keep my shirt. Cause I figured it was my lucky, you know, Oregon ducks, um, football shirt. And, and yeah, they, it, it got cut off regardless, But I remember one nurse, um, she, I remember her saying, like, hey, he's in bad shape. We need to get him back or he may not make it. And I was like, well, if I can hear you saying all that, then I must not be as bad as you think I am. I don't understand. Why would you say that? And I'd actually met her years later. And yeah, she told me, she's like, oh, yeah, you're, you're bad. Um, Shock was, you know, shock and everything. I didn't really think I was that bad. But, but yeah, that was, Um, I remember her saying that, and that's pretty much um, the last thing I remember um, someone saying before they put me under, and then when I woke up, she handed me a note that our medic um, had left with me, and it says, if you're reading this, you're alive, and so I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Wow.
1: All right, so uh, (laughs) what happens now? When you wake up next, where are you?
0: So I'm still in, I'm still in Tarenkaut, or TK. Um, they're trying to stabilize me to be able to fly to, I think it was CAF, and then I moved from CAF to BAF. Um, so Kandahar Airfield to Bagram Airfield.
1: Yeah. Why and, are they um, not you know, taking you out some, of Afghanistan some, at this point?
0: I couldn't, couldn't get stabilized enough to fly to Germany at that point. Okay. So, right. um so, and and the main transition hub for, you know, all wounded dudes heading to a Longstool is, is, is through, I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure it was Bath. And, but CAF was the closest um, major base to us to where they could do some more surgeries and then get me to Bath and then stabilize me for the flight to Longstool.
1: All right. So what is happening physically with you at this point? I mean, are doctors telling you, Hey, we're going to have to amputate. I mean, are they talking about, you know, what is going to be next for you uh, once they're able to stabilize or they haven't even had those discussions yet?
0: I don't, I don't remember those discussions. I, I remember, um, I remember my, you know, they, I had infection and, um, and I had, uh, you know, uh, couple strands of like e-cola or whatever it's called or I don't know um two or three strands of that and it was just you know I was a mess because you know all the all you know the just the 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 IED that just blew all that crap up into my you know bloodstream and whatnot like that but um they yeah they got me uh, there there wasn't a lot of talk about that I just remember one I remember one thing to where they had, they had wound vacs all over my leg to keep, well, whatever they do, I don't know. And, um, and they didn't want to adjust anything like that until I got to Germany and then Germany can make the call on whether or not they were going to amputate or whatnot. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I remember I just, I, you know, I just got packaged up. Uh, for for the hero flight and and uh, they you know flew to Longstool and then at Longstool you know I needed to undergo another um, blood transfusion so I had I had two blood transfusions which isn't a lot but you know it's enough but I remember <clears throat> they kept thinking I was A positive and I'm A negative and I don't know how I was coherent enough to understand this, but I was, I said, you're wrong. I'm a negative. And the doctor's like, Whoa, hold on, hold on. Stop, stop, stop. He's like, you're a negative or A positive. I said, I'm a negative. And uh, so they did a blood test and they're like, Oh crap. Yeah. You're, you're a negative. I was like, I know. (laughs) So (laughs) I told you. (laughs) uh, So that, yeah. So that, that was kind of a, that was kind of a long stool thing right there. But I think, um, you know, when I was at Longstool, and again, this is all through the eyes of an extremely uh, medicated person. But um, I think at Longstool, their thought process was to keep my leg intact until I could get to the States. And then, you know, at a major hospital in the States, they could they could go through the um, amputation process or, or whatnot. So, um, yeah, that was, to the best of my knowledge, that was the thought process behind how I was able to, you know, because on the battlefield, um, my casualty card, which I still have says below the knee amputee and, um, and how I was able to hold to my leg from, um, from Hellman, uh, along the Hellman river to Longstool to Brooks Army Medical Center. I I just think it's because the risk of infection was too high. They just wanted to keep wound backs everywhere, all over it. So.
1: Did you ever look down at your leg and go, "Holy, you know what? Like, oh my God, what happened?"
0: Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, plenty of times. But it's it was so bandaged up at that point that you can't, you know, it. it you know, it was obviously I could tell, you know, I I had done something, <laughs> you know, maybe stepped on an IED or something like that. But it was so bandaged up that you just, you know, it's hard to comprehend um, basically the severity of it
1: unreal all right um so let's get you back to the states and find out what's happening next and because the rehab at this point becomes the challenge and and the more grueling journey that you're on correct
0: oh yeah yeah so get back to the states and um and the my my doctor my main orthopedic surgeon um i remember they came into my room one day and there was they had a whole, they had an entourage of people all around them and everything like that. And he said, Hey, um, I think we have enough tissue. Um, we can salvage enough of your tissue to do this exploratory process called limb salvage. I was like, okay. And he said, so basically, you know, we'll, we'll try and successfully, you know, I, I say reattach the leg because it was only skin holding it there, but, um, we'll, we'll try to, salvage this limb and and if it works you know this is this is gonna this is gonna do a lot for for um for research and and this this will this will definitely um open up um a lot of doors in medical research and whatnot like that because your leg is is the worst we've had and if we can salvage this limb um this could benefit a lot of people And, and so my mindset at the point was, you know, once my leg is gone, it, it'll never come back. So, um, I might as well, you know, while, while I still have my leg, um, I'm, you know, I still have choices. And so that's basically, I was like, yeah, let's you know, let's do it. And they said, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a small chance it's going to take, um, but there is a chance and you know, that's, that's good to hang your hat on. But, um, worst case scenario is you, you just don't have a leg, which you really don't anyways. It's like, okay, cool. So yeah, that's basically what started the, um, the limb salvage process.
1: Has anybody at this point in time told you that your military career is over regardless, whether we can save the leg or not, you're like, have they said you're done?
0: No, no, they were some, you know, you know, you don't want (laughs) to, it's like kicking a guy in the head down on the ground. Um, they didn't want to do that quite yet, but you know, I, I knew, I knew that coming back from that injury, um, there's, there, there was a relatively good chance that, that this, this was it for me. You know, I was a green beret for, for nine months and (laughs) now I'm now, you know, that's it. And, um, it actually, it did happen that way. I, you know, I, you know, going through, you know, so 28 surgeries to, to reattach my right leg and, um, and all the rehab and everything like that. And, and yeah, in the end, um, I was medically retired. And so I, I fought to um, get put back on active duty through a waiver process. Um, it's a continue on active duty waiver or a COAD. ad um, And my co-ad got approved, which overturned the medical retirement. So yeah, I was, I was medically retired. And then, um I was able to you know continue on active duty um, through this waiver system, and basically it was we spent all this money to train you to be a green gray, we could get something out of you you can <laughs> you can go and and teach students or sit at a desk or we can get we can get some money out of you still, and so that was the whole thought process behind that
1: interesting, but
0: yeah, it's yeah, I was I mean my my the profile that I was gonna get you know was a is a dead man dead man's profile like no no wearing kit you can't be in boots um you can't be on your feet longer than 30 minutes at one time just all this other stuff and it yeah (laughs) non-deployable everything so yeah it's yeah basically it's like hey we'll, we'll put you at a desk and you can you know, you can kind of just go through the motions until you retire and then go on with life after that. So that's, that's pretty much the way everything was, was ramping up at that point in time was, um,
1: that. You're going to go through this process of trying to reattach your leg and, and put it back together for you. You know, are you feeling good about the slim chances of this going into it? Do you think that there's a realistic chance they're going to save your leg?
0: Um, I, I didn't really think that much into it to tell you the truth. I I knew that, um, I mean, it's hard to, with all the meds that you're on and everything like that. Um, and, and, and methadone alone, I mean, methadone turns you into a zombie. So I, I I can't really think that I don't think I was optimistic about it. I don't think at that point in time, I, I really knew what to be optimistic about. Um, it wasn't until later on when you know guys that were coming in that were below the knee amputees um they were they were rehabbing at just crazy paces and getting back and 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 taking off and I'm still here in a wheelchair I'm just like wow what what am I doing like why am I doing this um and and so yeah the discouraging the discouragement came you know um a little bit later on but right at first I don't I don't I don't think I was really, like, optimistic about anything. I was just kind of going through the motions.
1: I mean, you have over 20 surgeries on this thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. at, at what point, when you start to get, like, five, six, seven, eight surgeries, are you like, man, we should just cut this thing off, or you never actually thought that?
0: Um, no, I did. I, I did uh, multiple times, and every time I'd go in for surgery, I remember waking up, and I, I would always just, like, slowly look down to see if my leg was still there or not. (laughs) But no, there was, there there was times when I was just like, all right, this is, this is enough. Like I'm, I'm tired. Um, I'm tired of getting cut on. I'm tired of, you know, just this whole thing. Um, But I I don't know. I I don't know. For some reason I just, you know, I I could have pulled the plug anytime I wanted. I don't know why I didn't. I just, it's not because, you know, I mean, people may, they think like I had this drive to, to to defy all odds and all this other stuff. I, I don't think it was anything like that. I think it was just the fact that I was just like, well, this is the path they told me I'm going on, and so I'm supposed to go on this path, and so I'm going to do it the best I can.
1: <laughs> when is the first light at the end of the tunnel that this may work out in your favor? Like is it, you know, 18 surgeries in, 20 surgeries in? Like what are we doing here?
0: Uh... I, I, I don't I, I don't ever recall a light at the end of the tunnel um, and the amount of surgeries and I, I remember that eh, well maybe I do. I remember that they came in I had all, I had skin grafts all over my legs and the bottom of my foot and um, they said, hey, most of the time these skin grafts they don't take the first time we got to keep going in and you know they have the heat lamps over everything drying it out because they basically take a potato peeler and peel your skin off and then place that skin um where all the damage is at
1: the way you described that so, was really gross by the way
0: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's <laughs> a so
1: visual i didn't but, need. <laughs> um
0: yeah but and so they got the heat lamps everywhere and i think yeah i re, I, I remember that i you know my skin grafts were taking Um, and they were healing quickly and they kept coming in they're like, wow, this is, this is remarkable. Like you're, you're healing extremely fast. And so, you know, I started, you know, they started calling me Wolverine, but, um, but that's when I started figuring out, like, you know, again, I, I didn't know the gravity of the situation, like how hard and the gamble they took to salvage my leg until later on at this point, I just thought this was what everybody
1: does. So, okay. You know. Wow. Uh, so when do you first hear the term, uh, IDEO intrepid dynamic exoskeletal orthosis?
0: So that, so the idea was the reason why they started, you know, um, they really were going all out on this limb salvage because basically for what they would have, um, amputated on in the past. Now that now there was an Ideo device that could replicate a prosthetic limb, letting you keep your, you know, God given limb and you still have, you know, some of the mobility that you would have with a prosthesis, um, and you still have your leg. And so, um, that's, so I knew about the Ideo for, for a while, but I didn't know exactly how liberating it was going to be, you know, when I got fitted my first time and I strapped it on and all of a sudden I had, you know, power, I had a calf again, I was able to push off and all this other stuff. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's that's when I realized like oh this is why they do limb salvage this is this is great so
1: when you finally get done with all the surgeries and the idea is there um, when do you start the actual physical rehab of this whole thing like fr- from the day you got injured to the point you start rehab is how long time frame wise
0: oh so day I got injured to the day I started rehab, I mean, I I think I was going to the physical therapy. I got injured in September. I think I was going to physical therapy in December. Um, the IDEO didn't come into play until later on, but they, they're rehabbing you. Um, well, I'd say January is probably when I went to rehab or when I started physical therapy. I was in the hospital bed for, for months, but, um, but I, I mean, I remember sneaking out of my hospital room and um, going down to that little hospital gym to try and lift weights because, as you know, I'm a I'm a meathead, and um, and it was like you know I had you know I I had a, a I was on I was on the bench and I had like one forty five pound weight on each side and I couldn't get it off my chest, and I'm stuck underneath this, and I snuck down there by myself, so no one was there to oh, help me
1: the, out. Let me, um... <laughs> let me ask you a question real quick. <laughs> For any weightlifter knows this, the, the most embarrassing feeling in the gym is when you try to put weight on the bench, and you can't get it up, and no one's there to spot you, and someone has to run over and do it. But I, I think the situation you yeah. were in, when the bar is stuck on you with no one in the gym, although a lot scarier – is probably less embarrassing.
0: So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was I was on every cocktail of meds known to man. Um, I had zero business being in the gym. And, um, and yeah, I, I, someone forgot to re-rack their weights. And so there was the, the bench had 135 on it, and that was it. Um, something that everybody, you can warm up with that in your sleep. And so, and, you know, coming from – you know, gym is a, is a big part of my life. And so for me, I didn't really think 135 was going to be all that much until I dropped it, you know, basically on my face and a nurse walking by, you know, comes rushing in and, and then it starts this whole, like, what are you doing down here? You're not even supposed to be out of your hospital bed. And next thing you know, now I'm this renegade, you know, guy that's sneaking out of his room to go lift weights. And man, I, I was just, I was hell on wheels for the nurses and, and those guys, because I just, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um,
1: how'd you end up getting the bar yeah, off your chest? Um,
0: uh, she came in and took it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah as ner- nurse was walking by at the right time, but it was just that, it was just that whole, like, man, this was one thirty-five, And it just crushed me. I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be a long process, but, um, but no, I, um, I'd been, you know, I started physical therapy. um, Whilst, I mean, I remember wheeling up to the physical therapy department, um, the center for the intrepid, and I'd have, you know, two um, fentanyl lollipops sticking out of my mouth because the pain was so high. And um, because basically, what they did with my leg was, so they, they, they had these, they had like twenty some odd rods that were screwed into my to my bone, um, to my tibula and into, you know, all five toes had rods going into it to, you know, stabilize my foot. And basically they line everything up, um, to, you know, to basically, uh, to, I don't know, start to initiate bone growth, but so they lined up my tib and I had like two inches of tibula to grow back. And, and my foot had been blown in half. So they lined everything up and rotted it all up. And then they had these big halos that, um, where the rods went through. So it looked like a gigantic bird cage. It's called an X fix. And, um, and basically once they crank that thing down, um, they say, all right, you need to, you need to grow this bone. And the quickest way to grow bone is through friction and friction is through physical training and so um you're not going to break it this um this is stronger this um halo device is stronger than you are so go and grow bone basically and so i uh you know i i, I did i just started this like this self beat down because the harder you worked the 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 faster bone grows and and so yeah i'd, I'd roll in there with two and all lollipops sticking out of my mouth and just trying to numb the pain as much as I could then i I'd, I'd start my exercises just you know um, yeah trying to trying to grow that bone back and go from there
1: fentanyl lollipops uh that's that's not something you get at a, at a candy store uh, what what no. is it like uh, still using that level of medica- medication and trying to rehab
0: uh I mean you're <laughs> I mean, you're, you're in, you're in the spirit world, I guess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know how to explain it. You're just, you're just numb. Everything, mind, body, life, you're just numb. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's hard to explain, but I, I understand, you know, the, the the power of it and that's the reason why we, you know, we have a lot of issues with it today in the civilian world um, fit all's, you know. It's killing a lot of a lot of our youth, but um, there's a reason for it. And it's it's because it does it numbs everything, and um, so yeah. But I had them at my disposal because, well, I was having my limb reattached.
1: I mean, we're kind of going through this a little bit slowly. I think I think there's reason to it, but in reality, I mean, you're back on duty within a year, correct? Ah, uh, no. So I got blown up and.
0: In- September and I reported back to seventh group, November of 2011. So, okay, so 14, 14 months.
1: months. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's insanity.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was cleared to go back to seventh uh, group again. I had a dead man's profile, non-deployable. Um, and, You know, they were basically going to put me, I don't know, I think they're going to put me as like a, as like the air guy or something like that. So, um, but yeah, I got, I got back to seventh group and then, um, they have a program, many special operations, um, units have these programs, but ours was called the Thor three and it was basically our return to fight program. And so, you know, my unit or my company is scheduled to deploy back to Afghanistan in uh, 2012. And so, and you know, I was, I'm non-deployable and everything like that, but there was a catch and the Thor three um, basically physical therapists and, and, um, and uh, what am I trying to say? Athletic trainers and those mm-hmm. guys, um, they run you through uh, months of, of this return to fight um, kind of stuff and, and, and if you can get their blessing, um, then yeah, seventh group will override the non-deployable waiver and uh, accept responsibility. And then you can return to fight, um, kind of like the program is. And so it's a, it's an extremely, um, physically challenging program. Whereas in you are, uh, there's, I mean, you're, you're getting, you're getting just beat down by, by people that were, you know, athletic trainers and, and physical therapists and whatnot like that for, for sports teams and hockey. I mean, we had a guy that was, you know, he worked for the uh, Tampa Bay, um, their hockey team and, and he was there, you know, that was his way of serving his country was to come in and rehab, you know, soldiers like myself. And then we had another guy who, um, worked with Tito Ortiz and his strength and conditioning. And so, yeah, if you were to tell him, you know, Hey, this is pretty hard. Yeah. He didn't really have a lot of sympathy for you. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, but, um, so we had top of the line, like, like these guys are in the head, these guys are heavy hitters in the world, in the world of physical therapy, occupational therapy and, um, and athletic training. And so, and, and so, yeah, I just, I jumped in and just completely, you know, um, gave it everything I had. And I was, I was. I was tearing up people that had never been wounded before. They were just, you know, um, I don't know. I just, I had to, I had to prove myself and I had to get back into the fight. And, and yeah, I finally, um, I got, I got their, their busting like, Hey, this, this guy's good. He's good to go. And uh, March of 2012, I was on a, I was on a flight back to Afghanistan for uh, round two.
1: That is unreal. Um, Think back on that journey. Um, what stands out to you as the, the toughest part of it, and and what did you take away from it the most?
0: I would say the toughest part of my return to combat was um, the the very first IED that I found, and I was about a week in the country. Um, we were heading out on a mission, and um, and and you know we were we were on we were dismounted, and so we we're moving up to this compound and there was, you know, there was like eight foot mud walls surrounding this cluster of compounds. And then in, in this wall, there was a break where people could walk through and well, I mean, it's a path of least resistance. There's going to be an IED there. And so um, in this, you know, this break in the wall, I, I hit it real quick with my mind detector, got the positive hit. Um, started, started exposing the pressure plate. It's like, Oh crap, we got an IED here. So yeah, I called it back. But I remember like as nervous as I was and, and, and scared, um, the team was watching me because the team wasn't necessarily sold on the fact that I was even back there because, you know, they'd, you know, people knew what happened to me. They knew that I, you know, could, I was lucky to, to walk unassisted again And now here I am in the Panjoui province of Afghanistan, or Panjoui district of Kandahar province, which is the most IED area in Afghanistan in 2012. Um, Here, you know, here I am clearing IEDs again. And so guys, they, you know, they had their reservations about me. And I understand that completely. You know, the um, special operations is not a make a wish foundation where you bring a guy on and and, and get him some trigger time in in a combat scenario just to, you know, because, because he deserves it from no, you're right. That puts guys lives at risk. And so I understood it. Um, but yeah, with, with people watching and everything like that. And I was like, okay, I got to do this. Like I know what I'm doing. And yeah, as as scary as it was, I, I, I looked like I knew what I was doing and we, uh, we pulled the pressure plate and, and blew the jug and, it was, it was good to go. And I got, I got my first IED back under my belt. And, and that was one of hundreds of that trip.
1: <laughs> did you ever think, uh, did you ever stop and think like while you're on that deployment, like how lucky I am to be here or, you know, again, you're finding more IDs or IEDs. Are you thinking that like, what the hell am I doing here?
0: Yeah. I had a couple of what the hell's in my, what, what the hell am I doing here? Um, You know, cause uh, my, my doctors had said, Hey man, I'm, you know, you got your wish. You're going back to war, but I think you're rushing it. Like your leg isn't ready for this. And me, I mean, as well, wow, I'm, I'm just going to do it and see what happens. So, but, um, there was times when I wondered what the hell am I'm, am I doing here? Um, there was other times when, you know, the reality of, of the conflict and, and, and guys, you know, kind of like having to prove myself all over again, because now, you know, I'm, I'm coming in as, as with a lot of disadvantages in their eyes. And so, yeah, it's um, it, it took a lot, but, but towards the end, well, middle and end of the deployment, I really started clicking on all cylinders. And, um and then I was like, okay, I'm, I'm glad I made this one back. This, I, I needed this to, uh, to basically to prove the Taliban didn't beat me, um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm back. You know, it was a speed bump in life. Um, I didn't become a victim of it. Um, instead, I chose to uh, own it and make myself better. And and I'm and I'm back. But yeah, and there there was a couple months there where I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: let's fast forward to Afghanistan 2016, uh, which ended up being another. Uh, high point in your career. Uh, you were awarded the Silver Star mm-hmm. for uh, you know heroism and basically saving the lives of of Afghan soldiers. Um, just kind of take me through uh, the lead up to that deployment real quick and and what it's like when you get there and then and then we'll get into the actual events of the Silver Star.
0: yeah, so um i I wasn't actually supposed to go on that trip. I was scheduled to go to Guatemala for a J set. Mm -hmm. Um, but they, uh, a different, a different company needed a, um, an 18 Charlie. And, and, you know, I was, I was an 18 Charlie. So I was like, all right. Um, and they were heading back to Afghanistan, but, um, this, this trip was supposed to be pretty, pretty low key. I was going to be, you know, doing more of the Intel paperwork side of things. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got on the ground and started going through the motions of what I thought the deployment was going to be like. And then, uh, they said, Hey, a team, a team over, um, uh, near Boglin, uh, they need an 18 Charlie, man. Um, you, you want to go play around for a couple of weeks? I was like, uh, yeah. And that's, that's kind of, you know, that's what built up to the deployment and what got me on that mission.
1: So when you get there, uh, what is your mission? What are you supposed to be doing? Uh, and what is it day-to-day life like at that point? So
0: what, uh, so my job, my job was, um, strictly supposed to be, uh, sources and, and intelligence. I'm, I can't really go too much more into that than that, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of paperwork, um, just, you know, um, crunching intelligence and sending it up and, and the think tanks at BAF can do what they want with it, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it was going to be a deployment to get, to get jacked at the gym, um, and yeah, that was really, that's what I thought it was going to be was that right there.
1: So you end up going from a guy who almost lost his leg to a guy who was awarded the Silver Star for his actions in combat. What are the details? How did it all go down? Tell us a story.
0: Yeah, the, uh, so, uh, um, so I got requested to, to come out to a team as an 18 Charlie, um, with with some with experience, because the eighteen Charlies they had on the team, uh, they were right out of the right out of the course, and the area we were going into was um the, it was a safe haven for Taliban, which means there's IEDs. Um, and so you know I, I, I headed out their way and we did all the all the workups and the and the training for it, whatnot like that, and finally we get green light to launch um, into Boglin. And so, you know, we fly to boglan and we're, we're staying on an Afghan base um, there. And the plan was we were going to infill the uh, – on the other – so there was a ridgeline that separated um, basically the Jiroa forces from the Taliban forces. And um, so we were going to infill um, via um, Afghan Army Humvees because the Taliban, every time the Afghan Army went in there, they would just kick the crap out of them. And so we were hoping like, okay – they'll think we're just Afghan army. They'll initiate a firefight and we'll just drop bombs and we're going to level this place. Um, That was the thought behind it. And it, it, we went undetected. Um, We got the, we got the green light. We're good to infill. And, um, and so we, you know, we start movement to uh, basically where we're going to go from mounted to uh, dismounted operations and, and, and during dismounted operations, I'm in the front with um, some of my Afghan uh, counter IED guys and we're clearing the route for, um, for the follow-on forces. So we're a good 15, 20 meters in front of the main element and we're just clearing the route of IEDs (laughs) and it's, but it's, uh, it's, it's 1am. So, you know, you're under nods and everything like that. But, um, so we start the dismounted movement and I push up to the front with my guys and and we start, we start moving towards our first set of compounds, which we were going to clear. And, um, in between these compounds, there's a big orchard and Afghanistan, anybody knows anything about Afghanistan. They know orchards are really sketchy places, mm-hmm. super sketch. And so we start moving up and we get to the outskirts of the orchard and then team Siren gets on the radio. And it's like, Hey man, let's clear the orchard. So, okay. All right. Let's clear this thing. So we start our movement into the orchard and we're, we're clearing, you know, just getting a path basically that we could follow on to get to our first set of compounds. And, um, and all of a sudden we hear this, this, I mean, it's, it, you got to think it's, it's silent. It's, it's uh, it's dark. And all of a sudden we hear this pop. We're like, what? The, and so everybody drops like, okay, sniper fire. What, what was that pop? Well, myself and the guy up in front um his name was uh Besmila um myself and Besmila we were caught up in this like fishing line kind of thing like what the hell and and so basically uh, we had in, we had uh we had hit a tripwire IED that um didn't go off and so and they had the uh, they had the fishing line at chest level so when you know they know that we're our noses are buried into our mine detectors. Um, at nighttime, we're probably going to miss this tripwire that's at chest level, and the tripwire ended up going to a grape shot charge in the wall. That would have—it's like a Claymore mine that would have just annihilated you know the the five of us in the front, uh, myself and my four Afghans. So that happens. We pick ourselves up. I'm just like, holy cow, this is <laughs> okay. All right, we lucky, got lucky once. And, um, we start moving again and I see movement in this compound and all of a sudden this, you know, I, I see this figure and he spots us and then he starts sprinting towards, um, towards a, uh, another area of the compound. And so I bring my M4 up and, you know, I, I, I send rounds down range and next thing I know this PKM opens up on us and it, it was so close. It was like I could reach out and I could grab the flames that were coming out of the barrel. So we were getting engaged by a, by a um, PKM machine gun at about 17 meters from our position. Um, and then the entire mud hut wall just erupted in flames as in AK-47 uh, muzzle fire. And then, um, and then RPGs coming in. And so my element of us five guys in the front were cut off. And the uh, the Taliban had you know caught us up in an L shaped ambush, and that um, that tripwire IED was supposed to initiate the ambush. So um, we're you know now now it's now we're in the fight of our lives. And um, so yeah, the PKMs opened up on us. Um, the I mean, numerous amount of AK 47s and they can't quite figure out where exactly in the orchard we're at. But hey, if you put a lot of lead uh in one direction, something's gonna hit. And so rounds are kicking up all around me. And I'm I'm just I'm laying there and I'm trying to return fire at all, you know, I'm returning fire at the muzzle or at the uh at the flames that I see coming out of the wall because where there's a flame there's a gun and where there's a gun there's a fighter. And so um so I'm I'm trying to engage the best I can from the prone position and um and my guys, they're they're all over the road just trying to return fire the best that we can. And um, then our JTAC comes over the or I forgot who it was, maybe it was the JTAC. Somebody came over the radio and they're like, Ryan, they can see your uh, infrared strobe. And because I had I had an infrared strobe on my helmet because I was the most forward American in the in the patrol. And they were like, Ryan, they have night vision, they can see your strobe. And so, oh crap. Well, you know the night vision they had was that real blurry green. You can't mm-hmm. see crap, but they could see the flash. They could they could see the flash of the strobe. So I ripped the strobe off my helmet, and I, I kind of got up to my knees and I threw it as hard as I could, as close as I could get to where that PKM was at. And I was like, "Hey, that's that's where that's where we're taking the most fire from." Um, so uh, the the situation we we're in was pretty bad because the main element was behind um, mud hut walls because the, the, the orchard was surrounded by, you know, mud hut walls and whatnot like that. And so we were inside the orchard while the main element, they were getting engaged, um, but they were behind the mud hut walls. So they couldn't really see us and our overwatch position. They could see in the general area where I was at, but they were returning fire and their rounds were just, their rounds were like a foot or two above my head, like not not a good feeling at all. And so, and you you know the difference between five five six and seven six two cracking over your head, and they were both cracking, and it was, <laughs> it was something else. But um, this this uh, RPG guy kept popping out and shooting RPGs um, at the Overwatch position, and he popped out one time like literally. I mean, he, you know, he was 15, 20 meters from me, but all I, I didn't even have to aim my weapon system. I, he was just right in front of where my barrel was. And I put down 15 rounds and, and was able to um, drop him. But then that just increased the rate of fire from the PKM gunner and whatnot. And so, so we're, we're pinned down. We can't move. Um, Taliban is, you know, talking about capturing the American in the, in the orchard and blah, blah, blah. And, um and finally, you know, the JTACs, like we, we have to drop, we have to drop a bomb on this position. And so, um you know, basically they, they work up this um, air to ground solution and it took them, it took them a few minutes to do it because, you know, I was 17 meters from the peak AM. And so a 500 pound bomb at 17 meters, that's, that's, um that's more than danger close. That's danger. Yeah. Stupid. Basically. <laughs> so um, but yeah, it was, it was drop a bomb or, or Ryan dies. And, um, and so, yeah, he, they got, they got approved for it. Fast mode, and our JTAC gets on the radio and he's, he's like, Ryan, this is going to be big, man. You, you need to stay, you need to stay down. And yeah, he just said, good luck. And, uh, <laughs> his weapons release. And, um, I remember I could hear it coming in and then just boom. And the. So I remember I could, you know, the the shockwave came over and I looked up and there was, there was tree limbs and dirt and debris. And I was, I was most, I was mostly concerned that, you know, these big chunks of mud hut wall were going to rain down on me and like break my back and a bunch of other things. But, um, but no, I I was spared from that. I got, you know, just limbs and debris and rocks and whatnot like that, um, but I remember I kept trying to stand up after, after the first strike. And I just, it was like an out of body experience is like my skeleton had walked out of my body and slapped me and then walked back into it. Um, <laughs> so I kept, you know, I was kind of flopping around like a fish a little bit and my Afghans that were with me, they're, you know, they're trying to get their bearings and they're falling over and we just, we just look like just, just, uh, just a shit show. Are your ears just ringing
1: out of your mind right now? Um,
0: Well, yeah. So I couldn't hear anything um, at first. And then, um, you know, finally I started to hear these faint voices over my um, radio, Um, you know, because I had the, I had the headsets on and I hear these echoing voices like Ryan, Ryan, answer your radio, Ryan, you know, answer your radio. And it was just like this tunnel, like someone was screaming into a tunnel and I could, I could hear, I, you know, I could, I could start to hear him. And then finally I, you know, I, I squelched over and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I think, man, um, that was, that was huge. And I was like, is that a 250 pound bomb? And he goes, no, dude, you just ate a 500 pounder, man. It's like, holy cow. So yeah, they, they dropped within 17 meters of my position, 500 pound bomb.
1: Well, as I understand it, that wasn't the only five hundred pound bomb that was dropped. They actually had to drop another one, correct?
0: yeah, so when we finally um were able to make it back to the main element, um there was still movement in the compound, so um they came back in dropped another five hundred pounder
1: just more than seventeen and meters away from you.
0: we oh yeah we we're we we're at like eighty meters by that point, okay, good <laughs> but um so so yeah, but they uh Second one came in, hit, and you know, we we took that opportunity and moved up to the compound and started clearing it and and the dead bodies and whatnot like that. And and so that was uh yeah, it was it was crazy. But I remember the sun was up at that point in time. And um I remember I was like, man, my ears feel really weird, like like wet. And I had and so I had these um, I had liquid coming out of my eardrums I was like, oh man, this is going to be a long day, you know, but uh, it was just, yeah, it was just kind of, I don't know. I didn't really have a ch- adrenaline, I guess, um, kind of kept me in it. But, um, but yeah, that, w- that started, um, that started off, uh, basically, a 18 hour, <laughs> um, flight of our lives. Um, so Yeah that was that was the beginning in the orchard.
1: Yeah, um and it goes on for a long time, but uh it was your efforts to not only save your fellow Afghan commandos but also recover their bodies that ultimately was the uh the catalyst for the award, correct?
0: Yeah, so when we when we finished um when we finished actually doing the clearance of the of the village, um it was it, it was a, it was an absolute Taliban safe haven there was I mean I, re- I remember myself I I blew up 17 IEDs um and the Afghans I had with me they um over 50 um there was 107 rockets you know there was four or five 107 rockets um was I mean it there was tunnel systems it was just it was just an elaborate defensive um, village I guess because they knew that that the Afghan troops were going to keep coming in and trying to take it and so they were just they were just completely um, just fortified and so we finished this clearance of the village and we get to our LOA our limit of advance and it's like okay um, village is clear now we're going to need you know we're going to need some troops to stay behind and and hold the village you know that's kind of what you do you you take Ground and then you occupy it. And uh, the Afghan commandos that were with us, no, we're not staying here. This place is dangerous. Well, yeah, I know. That's the reason why you have to stay. <laughs> They're like, we're not staying. You guys stay. It's like, uh, this doesn't work this way, man. If we were in Texas, I would agree with you, but we're not. Um, we're in Afghanistan. And so it's kind of you know, so there's this back and forth going on between our team leader, our team sergeant, and the um, and the commandos. and one of the commandos came up to me, their sergeant major <clears throat> with an interpreter, and he said, hey, um, uh, we my guys are saying that there's there's like ten to fifteen um, people moving in this direction. And I said, well, people, like who villagers And he goes, uh, we're not sure, but I don't think they're villagers." I was like, okay, well, huh? Yeah, this okay. So I told, you know, I, I told the team center, I was like, hey man, we need to we need to roll, man. We got dudes coming into this area. And um he's like, okay, yeah, we're wrapping this up. We're leaving. If you guys stay, stay. If you don't, whatever. This isn't we did what we came here to do, but we're 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 withdrawn. And um this this Afghan came up to me again, he's like, Hey, yeah, my guy saw them, and then they disappeared. Like, okay, they disappeared. I'm I'm confused, but okay. And um, I turned. I turned again to the team center. I was like, "Hey, man, uh, yeah, I'm going to start moving my guys forward so we can we can um, exfil out of here." And at that, you know, right after I said that, I mean, the entire area just erupted in gunfire um, again—PKMs, um, RPGs, AK-47s, um, sniper rounds coming in. It was just we were all we were standing on this on this road, this dirt road, and I remember. The volume of fire coming in it looked like there was hundreds of horses running down the road with with the amount of dust being kicked up from rounds and so you know we did every everybody moves for cover there was um there was two ditches alongside alongside the uh, the road and so we all moved to you know towards the ditch and, and start returning fire at whatever whatever the heck we could we could see and you know hey we need to get air overhead we're uh you know we're were troops in contact again, you know, and, and working up all those solutions. And, um, and, and so, yeah, it's just, it's just this crazy, overwhelming volume of fire coming in on us. And um, I remember I was looking across the road <clears throat> and I saw this little um, ditch area that three Af- Afghans were hunkered down in, and they were taking, I mean, rounds were just peppering in on them. And I knew, I knew it was a matter of time before that before that PKM actually dialed them in and just killed all three of them. So I was trying to motion for them to come over to where I was at because I actually had, you know, a, a deeper ditch and a mud hut wall um kind of protecting me. And they wouldn't move. And I was like, dude, you you guys you guys are gonna die if you don't move. And finally I I just I jumped up out of the ditch and I, I sprinted over towards where they were that, you know, just praying to God this whole time. Like, man, I hope my, my ideal holds up. <laughs> but, um, I, I was just the thinking the same thing, thing. I <laughs> grab on the first guy, which was, his, yeah, I grabbed the first thing I could grab on the first guy, which was his hair. And I just yanked him out of the ditch. And, um, I was, and we just took off running for mine and there was, you know, it's, there was rounds kicking up around us and stuff like that, but I was, I was praying the other two followed and they did, thank God. And so we got them, we got them back to, you know, our, um, our area. And then, uh, my, my buddy who was with me, Frankie Hernandez, um, he was already patching, he he started patching up one of the guys that had gunshot wound to the calf. And, um, and so, you know, I, I got those guys back to, you know, where I was at and the initial volume of fire started to kind of decrease a little bit. Cause we were all, we were all behind cover. And, um, and so, you know, every time you would pop your head out though, um, these, these snipers, they, they put rounds in your direction. So it's like, okay. And I looked up the road and I saw, you know, there's a body laying in the road. I'm like, crap. Okay. So uh, there's, there's one person there at least. Um, and then, you know um um over you know i I start to see you know other afghans coming in that have gunshot wounds and whatnot like that and then you hear the uh you hear the dreaded uh radio announcement eagles down eagles down eagles down down. and so it's like okay are they are they kia wia and so we had four americans shot and um it's like oh crap this is (laughs) this is bad and uh and you know, the Eagles down, you know, you don't want to hear that over radio transmission, sure. especially in the heat of things. But, um, so we have, yeah, so we have four Americans shot at this, at this point, And I could see, I could see one body laying in the road up, a, up ahead. And, um, other than that, I don't, I don't really know what's going on, but I have a, you know, I have a bunch of wounded Afghans with us. And then we hear <clears throat> the other dreaded sound and that is of a mortar being launched. And it's like, oh crap. And so the first mortar round came in and it, and explodes, you know, 35, 40 meters from us. It's like, Oh God, this is bad. This is bad. It's like, okay. um, What do we do? Like, well, we need to, we need, (laughs) we need to move back to it, to, to, you know, a a better area and we need to establish a casualty collection point or a CCP. And, um, and so, you know, myself and Frankie were, we're like, Hey man, let's, yeah, we can move to these compounds right here. I'm pretty sure there's other Americans over in this area. <clears throat> so, um, and we're and we're like, okay, yeah, let's, we're we're going to have to basically low crawl or duck walk through this ditch. Cause every time we stick our heads up, a sniper takes a shot at us. And then the second mortar round comes in and it lands. <clears throat> it. So the first one went long, this one went short. So basically what they're going to do is split the difference and mm-hmm. they're going to hit us. Yep. So it's like, Hey, now it's now it's time to move like we're done um they just went long now they're short okay we gotta move so we we started this this excruciating duck walk (laughs) staying as low as we could in this ditch so we didn't take fire um to try and get to the first uh casualty collection point um and you know we start seeing other americans like hey there's joe hey okay there's chris okay we're good we're good And so we get these Afghans to the, to the CCP and we start bandaging people up and it's like, holy cow, what are we, what are we dealing with? And at this point in time, it was like 45 minutes into the tick, and we still didn't have air on station because um, they couldn't drop bombs because they couldn't see who was who. And basically the Taliban was in our lines and they were using the tunnel system to pop up and and basically engage us and then go back into the tunnels. So, um, we established this casualty collection point and we start treating people. And then this, this virage of fire starts to come in on our CCP. And we're trying to engage everything we can, we can to where we think the fire's coming from. Um, another Afghan gets shot and it's just like, what, what is going on here? And so they, they basically popped up, uh, from where we had our established our ccp and got elevated in some of the mud huts there and started engaging us so at that point in time we had enough standoff to where we can start dropping bombs and um and yeah we started leveling compounds around the first ccp but we knew that we had to change ccps we we had to move to another one because um this you know we're exposed we're taking fire we just had another guy get shot so it's like okay So we start picking up dudes and, you know, we got the wounded. And at this point in time, I think there's, uh, we got eight Afghans wounded. And I think um, we knew of at least two of them, KIA and four Americans, WIA. And so we find this other compound across the road again to where we can establish another CCP. It has a large field to where we can start landing helicopters, uh, medevac and get these dudes out of there. And, 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 and pretty much, you know, we, we can start to get damage control. <clears throat> so we moved to the second CCP and it's, it, it, it reminded me of the movie of band of brothers. Cause you come up to the road and you're looking on the road and it's your turn. And then you just got to sprint across the road, the grounds and whatnot like that. And we established the second casualty collection point. We, um we, we do our men weapons and equipment checks And, um, and during these checks, you know, we find out we're missing dudes. We have guys missing in action right now. Um, All Americans are accounted for, but our Afghan partners, um, they're missing in action. So we had a total of four um, Afghans still missing. And, um, and two, um, and two of them were my guys um, that were with the counter IED team. And so um, we're, you know we're we're sending dudes out i mean we're going out and um, search parties basically under fire to try and re recount where these guys were at we find we find another um we find two more um uh, bodies and it's like okay we got now we're missing two um one of them was my friend abe um and the other one was another afghan commando. and it's like where was abe at the last time we saw him where was abe and the last time i saw him um, we were up near the footbridge where our LOA was, our, our limit of advance was. It's like, well, the last time I saw him was about 200 meters up this road, <laughs> this dirt road. Um, yeah, and so we have, you know, we have to go get him. Um, no one gets left behind. And so we're trying to figure out the best way to do it. And, you know, there's there, there's some there's some heated debate, you know, on the team whatnot like that. Not not on the team, but between us with the Afghans, it's like, hey, you guys need to go get your dudes. And like, we're not going to go up there and get our guys. You guys have to go get them. We're like, oh, crap, because think about the situation what would happen if the Americans left them. Um, green on blues, uh, everything. Plus, it's not in our DNA as American soldiers to leave anybody. Nobody gets left behind. Nobody. And so and so, for JTAC, um, he, he's like, hey, I got an idea. Um, I can use the Apaches to do 30 Mike Mike gun runs. Um, and we'll basically, once the Apaches pass overhead and start their gun runs, we'll take off running down the road. And hopefully their gun runs will <clears throat> be keeping, you know, heads down and we can get up to where you think, where you think these guys are at. And I was like, okay, yeah, man. Cause that's the last I saw him. I'm pretty sure Abe's still up there waiting for us. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's uh, you know, come time and the Apaches are inbound and he's like, all right. And it, it, it felt like a, like a track meet, you know, it's, you know, every runner's ready. <laughs> but the Apaches started their gun runs and we just we just took off sprinting up that road and um and there's a few rounds coming in every now and then but yeah the apache's they did the job they had heads down and um and we we got up to you know 200 200 plus meters to where the last time I saw Abe and um and I looked in the ditch and he and he was lying there um dead uh, he had taken two two or three rounds in the pelvis and um, from sniper and he, and he had bled out. And then next to him was uh, one of the Afghan commandos and, and he was also dead. So we had, uh, we had reached our two fallen comrades and started to, you know, trying to, trying to get these guys out of this, 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 this muddy, you know, six foot deep ditch that they were in. And that's, that's not easy. Um, especially, you know, blo- um, a body is soaked in blood and um, and so it's extremely slick, and so we finally we get them out. Um, we used one of one of the ladders that uh, that we uh, we would use to climb over the mud hut walls and whatnot like that. We used one of the ladders to put Abe's body on it, and and we just we just started hauling um, just as fast as we could. And I remember um, as we were as we were getting back towards the casualty collection point with the, with the two bodies, the Afghans were just sitting there just staring at us. And I remember screaming at one of them. I was like, why don't you know, help us? We need help. And, uh, they just, they just sat there and stared at us. They were so much shell shock. And, um, so we finally, you know, helicopter landed, we got the two uh, bodies on the helicopter and, um, they were able to, you know, we were able to get get them out, and we had a hundred percent accountability of all of all men. Um, and so, yeah, now it's time to start our exfil. Um, and uh, some Afghan armor personnel carriers show up, and they were uh, they were just blanketing the area with fifty cal rounds, and we had air support. And so, yeah, we started the movement back to, um, to our vehicle drop-off point and, uh, and yeah, it's that, uh, that pretty much ended (laughs) the, uh, the the craziest combat experience of my life. And, um, and the total, total count was there, there was, uh, I think there, um, eight Afghans, uh, KIA, 12 Afghans, WIA, four, um, Americans, WIA, so, yeah, it was a it was a pretty good firefight, say so, the least. Are
1: you surprised you got out without a scratch?
0: Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had taken um, in the orchard um, when when those rounds were coming in on me. Um, they were hitting this little bank and and splintering off. So I had a you know I had a bunch of you know little little debris in like my arm and some in my cheek and what not like that just from the 762 rounds but um other than that yeah I, uh um the only injuries and and deaths we had were all gunshot wounds nobody stepped on an IED
1: I mean do you think back the fact that you were able to go on multiple deployments after your first one where you stepped on an IED and didn't hit another one lucky or skill or combination of both <laughs>
0: it's luck because, um, we hit the tripwire IED. Um, I had stepped on another IED that low ordered. And, um, so all total, I've actually, I've actually hit four IEDs. Three of them didn't go off. One of them did. And so I probably am not very good at my job, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, so I think, I think luck and and divine intervention, (laughs)
1: So you end up writing a book about your whole experience. Again, it's called tip of the spear, the incredible story of an injured green beret's return to battle. Um, what was the inspiration for the book and why did you end up writing it?
0: So the, the book, it didn't actually start off as a book. It was, um, it was writing therapy, I guess you could say. And so I, you know, I'd gone to, I had gone to see a counselor and, and, um, and whatnot like that, just trying to work through, you know, a lot of the issues, you know, I had had um from not just combat, but from just life. Um, finally starting to, you know, to to face, you know, all these issues that I've ran from for so long. <clears throat> and um and I remember like counseling wasn't really much for me, but I would always I was always talking with our chaplain and um and he told me, he's like, have you ever thought about like writing any of this out? You know, kind of taking it from your chest and putting it on, you know, a Word document. Because um, one of my things, I always had an issue about everything that was bothering us. And then we would go home and nothing was ever done. It was just dead air. And he's like, have you ever tried writing? <clears throat> and I didn't really think much into that until my 2017 deployment to Afghanistan when, um, you know, I was, I was at a pretty low point and I just, I needed a release of some sort and I did, I opened up my, opened up my laptop and just started typing and it just, it just, it just poured um, onto paper, everything from childhood to, to, you know, to military, to, um, divorces, everything. And, and, um, and I just, just kept typing and typing over the months and, you know when i had free time and then i went back and i kind of organized it to where it looks you know the way it does in the book right now and and you know the 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 overwhelming theme of what i had come up with was you know i was very good at playing the victim but not very good at like taking responsibility for my own actions and and i'm and the entitlement that i had you know thinking that i was owed something was was crippling me because you're not you're not owed anything nobody owes you a damn thing and um and so you know I was you know I had all this this writing done and I was like let me let me see what people think like and so you know a couple of my close friends my best friend Frankie um he read it and goes dude that's 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 me man like that book is me and then Tyler read it and Zach read it and they're like yeah that's that's me and then I had some family read it and civilian friends, and they're like, "Dude, I can relate with this. You need this needs to get out there for people." And um, that's actually what started it going. Was um, it started off as therapy, which turned into a book?
1: <laughs> but when you said you started writing it, it just started pouring out. Did you have a aim or a goal of what you were writing, or are you just putting thoughts on paper, like sort of randomly?
0: Thoughts on paper. Yeah. I had to go back and reorganize everything, but yeah, it was, it was just thoughts on paper. And I would, I I remember I would wake up at, you know, three o'clock in the morning, like, Oh yeah, this too, open up laptop and, and, and hit a paragraph or a page or two pages about this or this, this. Yeah.
1: Hmm. So how does it actually end up becoming a book then? I mean, I know your friends liked it and you liked it, but you know, getting it made into a book is a whole different discussion.
0: Yeah. So um, basically, you know, after, you know, I, I Googled, you know, how to write a book and whatnot. And, and, uh, you know, it's this, this, a ghost writer, you know, took me for five grand and disappeared. And I was like, Holy cow, man, what is this sucks? Well, finally, um, one of my friends was like have just Google military authors and send emails out and see, see if anybody, anybody, um, catches on. And so I did. And this lady, <clears throat> this lady named Lynn Vincent, um, she, she, she had, uh, she emailed me back and she's like, Hey, you know, I looked you up, you know, Silver Star you did some good stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, she's like, I, I don't have the time, but I have a buddy who would like to look at what you got. And he's an editor, um, out of, out of San Diego named Mike Yorkey. So I, you know, I emailed him, did the icebreaker and we got the chat. And then I sent him what I had and, and he's like, Hey man, I'll, you know, I'll get to it when I can, you know, pretty busy, but, uh, we'll talk. And uh, within a couple of days, he, he contacts me back and he's like, you have a book here, dude. Like we, we have to make this a book. This, this needs to get out there. And so he, um, so he helped me with the editing process line by line, uh, word by word over, over like nine months, we went back and forth, back and forth, um, him and I, and he had a friend named Greg Johnson, who is a literary agent. And, um, and so we, we got, you know, we, we got the, um, I, I forgot what it's called, but it's basically how you pitch the book to publishers. And, um, and he was able to, you know, um, Hachette book group said, yeah, we, we want this story. And that's, that's how it, that's how it went from, um, writing therapy, journalism to a book was, um, Getting it out there, you know, as in uh, Mike Yorkie and Greg and those guys, uh, it turning into you know a book and getting picked up by a shit book group. Um, I do. I, I you know I feel like it's you know it's, it's it's part of God's plan and what and what He has for my story.
1: So your story, I mean, the entire story of you, obviously not complete, but the story of you as a soldier, complete. Um, mm-hmm. I know the book does a lot of this for you, um, but what do you want people to know about your story, particularly not only your, your return from the explosion and back to active duty, but, you know, the Silver Star and everything else? I mean, you know, is there a way you sort of can encapsulate how you want people to know you?
0: So, I yeah, it's, you know, the the return to duty and the Silver Star and all that stuff, That's that's just – that that's not really you know the. That that's not really the story. Those are parts of my life, but it's not you know it's it's all superficial. Um, what I want people to be able to take away when they read my book or um, listen to these you know podcasts and whatnot like that. What I want people to be able to take away is the fact that, you know, um, you do have a choice, you don't have to be a co- you don't have to become a, a victim of life's, you know, oftentimes ugly circumstances, um, you can take, you can take control, you can own, you can own this situation. And you can use these, you know, these speed bumps in life, like getting your leg blown off, you can use it to make you a stronger man, a better person, um, someone who builds people up. Um, and people actually, they get something from when, when they meet you and that'll benefit their lives. You can, you can do that. You don't have to be a victim. And then the other thing is entitlement. Um, people think that they deserve this because they're, they're just born or I deserve this, or I'm entitled to this, but in the end, you're not entitled to it. Nobody owes you anything, nothing at all. And, um, and, and once people can, you know, figure that out, because I, I, I battled with that for a long time, as far as, you know, like, well, this happened to me, so you should, it's like, no, like, you're not owed anything. Once you understand that you're just a part of something, you are not the thing. And, and you, and you, and you quit becoming a victim of everything that happens to you. Um, using excuses, like, you know, I was raised this way. So this is why I'm this way. Or I saw this, so this is why I do this or whatnot. But taking back control of your life—that's um, and, and refusing to become a victim—that's that's what I want people to get from my story.
1: The dark place you can get to mentally, uh, given all that you went through, is understandable. Uh, and getting out of that dark place is different for everybody. But it, are, are there keys to it? Are there are there sort of little you know? tricks of the trade, so to speak, that people need to know about how to not continue to fall deeper and deeper and pick themselves up?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I I would say one of the biggest ones that I tell people is this is, it's not easy. Um, Becoming a victim, being a victim, excuses, that's extremely easy. That's the reason why we have such an issue with it today. Everybody's a victim of something. Um, But taking, taking control of your life, that, that ownership over, over you, um, that's, that's hard. And so um, the, and so I tell people, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy. And it's a constant work in process. You know, I'm, I'm a human, and I make mistakes all the time. And I'm constantly having to, um, having to, you know, adjust fire and get my shot group back and whatnot like that. um, Because it's not going to, it's not going to be easy. But you have to you have to come to a point when basically you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and enough is enough and if you've and if the victim route isn't doing it for you i mean this is this is this is life you can you can go through the rest of your you know life and 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 waste it away always being victimized or you you know you can take control, and once you figure that out, it's it is it's a it's a liberating um, feeling to to not to not have an excuse. It just things, it is what it is, man. And um and people that think life is easy, I'm I'm sorry, you're wrong. Once you understand that life can beat you down, you're better apt to take those beatdowns and keep moving forward. Um, I believe, you know, in my story. I believe everybody is faced with IEDs in their life. You don't have to be a soldier to uh, encounter IEDs. And I believe people are going to step on IEDs in their life, whether it's personal, um, business, anything like that. And you have three choices um, when you hit those IEDs. Uh, you, can, you can lay there and you can accept death and know that, hey, this is it. Um, I'm just going to die. Um, or number two, you can lay there and you can wait for others to come and save you. You can lay there and, and wait for the rescue team. Or the third one is, is you can, you, you can tourniquet yourself. You can get your gun back in the fight and you can survive. You can take control over this situation. And, um, and it's hard, but it's, 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 that's, I mean, that's liberation right there. And um, that's, I guess uh, that, that was what, that, that would be, uh, what I would tell people is to understand it's it, it's not an easy process. So
1: if this is the easy button, you're you're wrong. If you had chosen to amputate your leg or the you know the, your foot down where you know shin down whatever the injury point was, no one would have looked at you as weak or stupid or soft or you know uh, not up to the challenge or not courageous. Every people would have understood it. Do you ever wonder what your mm-hmm. life would be like had you chosen to go down that road?
0: Um, every now and then I do, but I also, you know, I know that, you know, the the path that I took, this is, this is the path that I'm on. And I can constantly be looking at, you know, at the other paths, um, trying to figure out how those would have worked out for me. But in the end, all I'm doing is I'm just, I'm just standing still and not moving forward. And so, you know, I went through my time when I was like, man, I would have just been better off without a leg. Um, but that's not the path that I'm on. Um, and because I want to keep moving forward. Um, I, 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 I don't really entertain those thoughts anymore. No.
1: When you decided to hang it up from active duty and, and, you know, end your military career as an as an active Green Beret. Uh, was that a tough decision for you?
0: Uh, no, it, it, it wasn't the um, the basically the time. You know, the time had come. I I, I could see you know the uh, the transition in uh, you know the new guys coming in, and I'm I'm just you know <laughs> I'm this I'm this old dude, which not really old, but you know. Um, but no, it, it actually me transitioning out of the military again um it was just it was just perfect timing it was it was like yeah this this is when this is when it's time this is the time to do it you know i was i was just coming back from another deployment to afghanistan in 2018 um or 2019 i'm sorry coming back in 2019 and it was just like yeah i got my last two run in afghanistan as a green beret um we're not looking to go back to afghanistan um as a company for years so yeah this is a good time to go ahead and uh, move on to that next chapter in my life
1: and what does that next chapter look like for you i mean we mentioned at the top of the show that you were uh, waiting to go back as a contractor so uh <laughs> did you you obviously have more to do in afghanistan
0: yeah, I mean, I I, I do I, I do enjoy Afghanistan a lot. I I love the people. Um, I love the work there. You realize and, nobody and actually my,
1: ever really says that, right? Like, I really enjoy Afghanistan.
0: <laughs> I do, though. I do. That's why I've been there seven times, and I'm going back for an eighth. I mean, I I do enjoy it, or else I wouldn't have gotten into this job because um, you can you, you can never get time back, and so I don't want to be miserable um, wasting time when you can make all the money in the world, but it's, it, it's time. You lose time. You never get those seconds, hours, days, you know, weeks, months back. And so I do, I do enjoy it. Um, I am, I am coming towards the end of my enjoyment where I'm ready to, uh, to look at, you know, other things in life that do not, uh, have me behind a gun and, um, uh, Cause the job that I'm in right now, we go out with the units and we do counter IED work and counter threat stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I am, I, I'm definitely, um, I enjoy what I do, but I'm coming to another transition to where I want to start looking um, maybe at, maybe at other opportunities or whatnot.
1: Maybe opportunities that don't involve IEDs, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, that'd probably be smart. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you kind of, do you ever stop and think like, I've been playing with fire long enough, you know, maybe it's time to stop doing this? Yeah, I mean, I,
0: I've been playing with fire, um, you know, I've been burnt a couple times, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, um, I think I've done my part. Um, and I, you know, I, I love to, I love to, to uh, give the knowledge that I have, to those future war fighters. Um, I love it. That's one of the reasons why I'm in this job is because we're, you know, we're counter threat advisors and I absolutely, you know, I enjoy that part. It's, it's extremely fulfilling. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think I've, I think I've played around with enough IEDs in my life and I I can move on to something else.
1: Well, look, uh, what a journey, right? I mean, what a, what a story. Um, it, it's, it's crazy enough to think that after all you went through, you just got back on active duty. But to be able to uh, save the lives of, of fellow soldiers, Afghan soldiers, and uh, you know, go the extra mile in recovering those, the, the, those fallen, I think to earn a silver star is just the, the, the icing on top, I would assume, for you. But you know, beyond all that, uh, you know, after 20-plus years, it's been a pretty charmed career, to say the least.
0: Yeah no it's it, yeah it's it, it's been a it's it's been a crazy twenty plus years, um, Navy Air Force Army yeah it's <laughs> uh, yeah I've done a lot.
1: Well look uh, again the the book is called Tip of the Spear: The Incredible Story of an Injured Green Beret's Return to Battle uh, it, it's worthwhile reading. It's an absolute fantastic, you know, in-depth look. And I think the big thing is that, you know, you touch on a lot of the emotional topics that are really important for people to hear, you know, and, and it's not always easy to open up to those things. And and it, that I think is a different kind of courage, but I definitely think you showed it.
0: Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. I do. Cause you're right. It, it was not easy. <laughs>
1: Well, listen, uh, have a wonderful uh, trip to Afghanistan because I know how much you love it. But seriously, stay safe and uh, take care <laughs> of yourself. And, and certainly thank you so much for your time. And certainly thank you for the soldier that you've chosen to be, because I think that really is is what's reflective here. Uh, but most importantly, you know, uh, thank you for sharing your story.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on. And I appreciate you guys um, getting getting veteran stories out there. I really do. Thank you.
1: Uh, Ryan Hendrickson. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Okay.
0: You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review on Apple podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.